Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we're looking at the readings for the Wednesday in Holy Week. That covers your A, B, and C. The readings don't change because it's not a commonly used service. But if you're meeting, here are your texts. Old Testament is from Isaiah chapter 62, starting at verse 11, and goes all the way through 63, verse 7. The epistle from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And then there's an option on the gospel of either Luke 22 and 23, both those two chapters of Luke's gospel, or John chapter 13, verses 16 to 38. Now, because I've done the Luke readings, 22 to 23, as the gospel reading for Passion Sunday in year C, I'm going to slide that episode forward, and I'll just tack it on to the end of this one. So we'll have Isaiah, Romans, and John, all new material, and then a review here of Luke 22 and 23 to end this day's podcast. Let's start out with Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11, through chapter 63, verse 7. Behold, Yahweh has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of Yahweh. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Contextually, we remember the prophet Isaiah is prophesying the destruction of the kingdom of Israel, but at the same time, he will throughout his book also give prophecies about restoration and hope. And this section is part of that restoration and hope. Yahweh has proclaimed, and not only to Israel, look at this, to the end of the earth. A couple of New Testament passages we'll talk about first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. And we see Peter as the apostle to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles. This is the reality even in the Old Testament. God's salvation was never going to be limited to just one group of people. But it would be proclaimed to the end of the earth. This is Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The words Jesus speaks to his apostles just before he ascends into heaven. This is good news as the good news of Jesus Christ has reached even our land, has reached even our ears. And I suppose more importantly, our hearts, that the Lord has created faith in us. Thanks be to God. Say to the daughter of Zion, this is a reference to God's people specifically, and to Jerusalem. Zion is another word for Jerusalem in a way. It gets used interchangeably, but it refers to a specific mount in the area of Jerusalem. And what is proclaimed? Behold, your salvation comes. Now, Again, this is a Holy Week text. Not too hard to see here. We're talking about Good Friday. We're talking about Jesus Christ, King of the universe, stepping down off of his throne and willingly going to the throne that is the cross, where he was nailed. His wrists and his feet pierced through with steel or iron or whatever the nails were made out of in order that he would be fixed to that cross 
for us to take away our sins. The moment Satan thought his victory was his undoing, he thought he had killed God. And he did, but he thought that was his victory. It wasn't. It was God's plan. It was God's plan through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem, to rescue, to save not only the Jews, but all people. What Satan thought was his victory was his demise, his defeat, because he can no longer hold our sins against us. And that's what one of his names means. He is called the accuser. But he no longer can accuse you of your sins. All of that has been taken away by what Christ has done. So when the devil tempts you, it just point him to the cross. And just remind him what Jesus has already done for you. That you are forgiven. That you are saved. That you are his. Behold, his reward is with him. Jesus comes bearing gifts. His recompense before him. Recompense to be compensated. It's hard not to see that word as us. That we are his recompense. That we are his reward for his labors. That he was willing to die on the cross in order to redeem and rescue his bride, the church. Just as Hosea, the prophet, was told to go and chase after his adulterous prostitute wife, Gomer, and at one point had to literally buy her back. She had gotten herself into such a tight bind. But he did. And when he did, make the sacrifice, right? The, the money's gone. But he has, he has his wife. And so Jesus laid down his life, but he has his bride. He has you, and he has me. They shall be called the holy people. The redeemed of Yahweh. And so we are, holy, that is, set apart as Israel was to be from the get-go. The Lord had set Israel apart in order that he could show the whole world his grace, mercy, generosity, love, also his judgment, but that all the world would see these things, that they would see how God treated his people Israel, and they would want that. They would want to be a part of that. We see that with the Egyptians as they leave Egypt, some of them do, with the Israelites after the ten plagues. They're holy, they're set apart, and so are we. The New Testament multiple times reminds us that we are exiles. We are sojourners in this place. This is not our home. We are redeemed. That is, we are bought back by Jesus. By Jesus. It's his work, his death, his sacrifice that has earned our salvation. You shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. These phrases remind us of the Lord. In particular, I think to Ezekiel chapter 34, which is a lot about how we are sheep and the Lord God is the shepherd. For example, in chapter 34, verse 11 and 12, For thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. 
from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. God will seek us out. We walked astray. The picture of Jesus with the 99 sheep, but the one that wandered off, and he goes and he finds it and he brings it back. That's us. Now, we're addressing daughter of Zion, Jerusalem, and so to end this paragraph with them being called the city not forsaken, because God has not abandoned them. He has not left them. He has instead, the opposite, redeemed, saved them. That gets us to chapter 63. Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimsoned garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. This is a war picture. Edom is to the south. It's the region just south of the Dead Sea. It was settled by Esau. Remember the brother of Jacob, his, his twin? They've often been an enemy of God's people. And, in fact, you have a minor prophet, Obadiah, written against them. That one chapter little book that it is. God is marching from there, from Basra, which is one of the cities in northern Edom, and he's soaked in blood from battle. That's the picture. He has cut them down in his judgment. Why? Because he was saving Israel. He was defeating her enemies. It is I, Yahweh, speaking, mighty to save. And so he has asked the question, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? So you get the picture of those who have the, the long robes as was normal at the time, and they put a bunch of grapes into a trough, and they step in and they crush them with their bare feet. Well, you're going to get some of that on the bottom of your robe. That's the picture here. There is a interesting connection as the word Edom or Esau means red. And then God speaks again. Verses 3 through 6 will be God speaking and verse 7 will be back to Israel or Isaiah and the prophet or, or the people. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. It's a paragraph of God's wrath, but also salvation. God destroys the enemies of his people. This is a picture of Judgment Day. There's a beauty to this, because on the day of judgment, all those who have been your enemies, all those who have sought to separate you from Christ and his cross and his forgiveness and his gifts of life and salvation, all of them will be cut off. Not one of them who remains an enemy of Jesus, not one of them will enter paradise. They will be blocked off. They will be cast into the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. They will be removed. And so it is here. The Lord has done this. 
He's poured out his wrath. Now, there's an interesting parallel, again, to Good Friday, in that God poured out his wrath on Jesus. That Jesus, who was no sin, became sin in our place. That Jesus, who did not deserve death, took our sins upon himself and he took them to the cross. And as we talk about being alone here, no one was with me, calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think that's directly what this paragraph's about, but we can see a bit of a connection anyway. Life blood spattered on my garments, but it was his own because he gave his life for us. The day of God's vengeance. We are told in Scripture, Romans 12 is one place where vengeance belongs to the Lord, where we are not to take vengeance for ourselves. Leave it to God. He will do it. And he does. Sometimes he does it truly in this day and age. Any defeat of Edom, for example, would be part of that. But we know there's a bigger day in mind. The day of vengeance, my year of redemption had come. So yes, you can talk about King Cyrus. You can talk about Persia and how Babylon is defeated and the Jews are sent home and they're allowed to rebuild 538 B.C. But much bigger than that. Good Friday again. As the day of vengeance is God's attack, God's defeat of the devil. The year of redemption that has come, that's God's plan, his appointed time. He's been waiting to do it ever since the beginning, and this is what we have in our epistle in just a moment. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, the appointed time, God's plan of salvation is unfolded. It is finished. Verse 5 again, no one to help. The Lord could not be aided in this task. For we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God, which is also a Romans passage. So my own arm brought me salvation. Arm. That's a military picture. That he's drawn his sword and he's fighting. Again, you can look at the more immediate context of Persia. But we see God the Son. We see Jesus Christ who fought against sin, death, and the devil and brought salvation upon this creation. My wrath upheld me. It's an interesting phrase that God's anger, his righteous wrath and judgment allowed him to carry forward. It encouraged him, if you want to say it that way. The interesting connection to the cross, again, is the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus on the cross as he is being held up on the cross for that. But again, verse 6, I trampled down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my wrath, poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Straightforward. God judges the sinner. So that's why we've been looking so much at the mercy, the grace, and salvation that we see in this passage too. 
because verse 6 is also true. God, God is both just and merciful. But for those who don't want it, those who, who don't want anything to do with God and his life and forgiveness, well, he gives them what they want, everlasting separation from him. Then Isaiah speaks, and again, you could take this as Isaiah or the people. I will recount the steadfast love of Yahweh, the praises of Yahweh, according to all that Yahweh has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. The prophet will speak. He will sing the praises of Yahweh, specifically his steadfast love. That is, again, the Old Testament Hebrew word hesed, steadfast love, mercy, covenant faithfulness, loyalty, that God does not turn his back on his promises, but he is always faithful. That's the picture of this word, and maybe agape, unconditional love in the New Testament Greek, maybe that helps to see this word. But this is also our love to recount, to tell others about the steadfast love of Yahweh, that he is for them, that he has redeemed them, that he has rescued them from sin, death, and the devil. We live in a world where the people around us have no hope. I mean, literally, they have no hope. Most of them today think that they're an accident. That's the teaching of evolution. You just kind of happened. There is no purpose to the universe. You live, you die, and you're gone. That's hopeless. And so they live in despair. You have hope. This is why First Peter 3 says to always be re- ready to give the reason for the hope that is in you. It's a great tactic for us today. Share our hope. Talk about paradise. Talk about what we look forward to. Rejoice in the promises of Jesus. Again, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. And that's not just spoken to the apostles. It applies also to us. So let's talk about what he has granted us, forgiveness, life, salvation. Let's talk about his great goodness, all the promises that we have, the hope that we have in Christ, because they come from him, from his compassion, and from his steadfast love. Our epistle for our midweek reading, again from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Just one paragraph. Here we go. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. While we were still weak. Elsewhere, Paul would write Ephesians 2, while we were still dead. 
unable, incapable, not possible, could not save ourselves, Christ did. 1 Corinthians 1 uses the weak language as well, that God chose the weak in order to shame the strong. But this is not a contrast with that, with enemy peoples. This is us. In fact, this is all of us in this picture, that we were all weak. We all had failed. We all could not save ourselves. And yet, Jesus did. Because Jesus died. At the right time. There's a lot of debate over this. Why was 27, 28, 29 AD, why was that the right time? Why was 6 or 5 or 4 BC the right time to send Jesus into this world? Most people would argue today would have been better. That if Jesus had come today, his miracles could go viral, that everyone could see them. While that's true, remember that Jesus' miracles often did not bring faith. Think of how the Pharisees could watch Jesus heal a man with a withered hand and get mad at him for doing work on the Sabbath. Think of how he fed the 5,000, but they just wanted him to stick around and be their bread king. And so when he tells them afterwards about how they need to feed on him, John 6, eat his flesh and drink his blood, they, they leave. Miracles don't often bring faith. In fact, when he does a lot of his miracles, we see that he does them because the person already had faith. At the right time. This was God's timing. It was his plan. He knew it from the beginning. He knew from the beginning that we would rebel against him and he would need to lay down his own life to save us. But he was willing. And so for the first 4,000 plus years of creation and sin and death, he had been planning all along to send Jesus. Here's another right time. The right time for Jesus to return. That we look forward to today. We don't know if it's today, tomorrow, 10 years from now, 1,000 years from now. We don't know. And so we live with urgency trusting in his promises, and knowing that it's good for our neighbor to hear them. Christ died for the ungodly. That was all of us. We were all opposed to God, but he rescued us. Verse 7 is a bit tricky. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. This is not the normal biblical use of the word good. Jesus tells the rich young ruler, Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good. But instead here we have a contrast. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. Righteous, just, right. Think of that person who you know that best holds to God's word lives out a life of faithfulness. In this culture today, that does not make you popular. It makes you an enemy. And people see you suffering, they'll probably laugh. They're not going to look to help. 
They're especially not going to be willing to step in and die in your place. But, and here's what we have, though, for a good person, perhaps. Here are some other ways you could translate the word good from Greek. Kind, benevolent, beneficial, better, dependable. And so now you start to think of of a person who's just as much enriched in the world, enmeshed in the world, but their neighbor views them as trustworthy. This person's always there for them when needed, helpful, maybe for that person. I think we might even push this today and and just talk about our idols, talk about celebrities, talk about athletes. People would be willing to lay down their lives in some of those cases to save the famous one because they view them as being better than themselves. It's an interesting perspective to ponder. Again, it's a tricky verse because we don't normally talk this way. But the point is for verse 8 to come. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not righteous, not even good. We were still sinners. We were worthless. And Jesus, well, Jesus didn't think so. Jesus still loved us. And this is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the gospel. And again, Good Friday, Jesus died for us. So here we are on the Wednesday of Holy Week with some good Good Friday texts. So, verse 9, since we're justified by his blood, Much more. I mean, this is the picture twice over here in this section now. While we were enemies, while we were weak, while we were sinners, if God would do this for us, he would die for us. How much more now that we're no longer weak sinners and enemies? How much more now will he do this for us? So the first picture is if we've been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him. So if he bothered to do this, if he bothered to shed his blood on the cross for you, He's not going to take it back. And we say this every week in the confession of sins in our worship service. Almighty God in his mercy has given his son to die for you and for his sake forgives you all your sins. The work's already done. The price is already paid. Christ isn't going to take it back. It's yours. It's not in vain. And now secondly, if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved? Same idea. If Jesus was willing to die for us when we were his enemies, now that we're his bride, how much more is he going to save us? It's not a matter of hope just for the moment. This never ends. And then thirdly, We rejoice because we've been reconciled. 
to be reconciled is to have your relationship with another one restored, to be brought back together. And that's what Jesus has done. Again, Ephesians 2 is excellent here, um, the, the latter part of the chapter. That Jesus has broken down the dividing walls of hostility in order to make us one, to restore us. And we, we are in him. And so we rejoice, that is, we take joy again in God. And we do it again and again. Rejoice always. Again, I will say rejoice. Thanks be to God for what he has done. And again, it's Holy Week. That's what we're doing. That's what we're up to. We rejoice again and again. We remember Good Friday, and we call it good because Jesus gave his life out of his love for us to save us. Now this brings us to our gospel readings. Again, you can do Luke 22 and 23 or John chapter 13, verses 16 to 38. That's the one we'll start with. The Monday in Holy Week is John 12, verses 1 to 23. And then Tuesday starts off at the same spot, reading 12, 23 to 50. Then on Wednesday, we skip over the first part of chapter 13, the really the conversation around foot washing with Jesus and the apostles. But we pick up again right at the end of that, talking about a servant not being greater than his master. So wash each other's feet is part of this idea. But here we go. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. All right, so this truly, truly phrase, amen, amen, 25 times it's used in John's gospel, and we're going to see four of them in this section that we have today. Jesus emphasizing, and if the Lord says truly, he doesn't need to say it twice, but he does. A lot of emphasis on that. He's not telling them a lie. And so this one begins with the idea that a servant, disciple, not greater than his master, Jesus. Now there is a bit of God the Son, God the Father in that too. God the Son is not greater than God the Father. And so when God the Father sends God the Son, God the Son does what the Father sent him to do. But it's also then playing out for us that as Jesus sends us, we're not greater than him. We are to do what he did. We are to follow in the steps of our master and not expect to be received differently than he was. As he was received with hatred and violence and even death, we should expect much the same from this world that still hates him. And because they hate him, they'll hate us. Blessed are you if you do them. So stay faithful. And in staying faithful, you're blessed. Similarities to Matthew 5, Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for the name of Jesus. 
Now, Jesus does here reveal that there is one who will betray him among them. And he notes this is from Psalm 41, verse 9. The scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. We know this to be Judas, Judas Iscariot. The disciples don't yet know it. Verse 19, he's telling them this in advance so that when it plays out, they can remember that he said this and recognize that he, A, speaks truth, but B, that means he is who he says he is. Believe that I am he, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. And it will come to pass, and there are those moments where the disciples, having seen these things, they remember. Whoever receives the one I send, receives me. And that's pretty simple, actually. If you are willing to hear, right, if you're willing to receive the disciple as they go out on the journey, you welcome them into your home, you're going to hear the word that they have to say. If you're not willing to receive them, if you're not willing to have them in your home, you're not going to hear the word they have to say. So the one who receives the disciple is receiving Jesus because that's what the disciples bring. Just as whoever receives Jesus receives the one who sent him. So that's the sandwich kind of pattern of this. God, the Father, and the Son, the Son, and the disciple. Back to the disciple and the Son, and now the Son and the Father. When we receive Jesus, we receive the Father because Jesus' work is to reconcile us to the Father, to put an end to our sin, and to give us peace, to make us whole, to reconcile, to restore, to redeem. Most of those words we've already seen in the podcast today. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This paragraph's about the betrayal of Judas Iscariot against Jesus. Jesus knew. Even before he created Judas, Jesus knew But he still loved him. He still had compassion upon him. He still came. He still worked with him for three years of his earthly ministry. He served with Judas side by side. He still loves his creation. And so this pains him. He's troubled in his spirit. Some of you don't have to imagine this. You can recall how your own child that you loved and cared for and raised. You can recall how they've harmed you, turned against you, gone away from the things that you hold dear. 
if you've got that experience in some way, shape, or form, you've got a glimpse into what Jesus has here. The disciples, of course, can't believe it. They're, they're stunned, and they don't know who it is. So we get this, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That is the way John refers to himself in his gospel. He never once calls himself by name. Now, some view this as him being boastful and prideful. I take it in the exact opposite way, that this is him being humble, that he is not himself worthy, nor is he the focus. So don't, don't even name himself. doesn't even name himself, but rather that God loved him anyway. Also, though, it allows you to read yourself in because you are the disciple whom Jesus loves. I mean, it doesn't mean you do all this stuff, right? But the focus, the focus isn't on John. And so Peter motions to him to ask Jesus who it is. Now, notice they're reclining at table together. So uh, ancient world, they're laying on the floor, maybe with some pillows for some cushion, they're laying on one side, using an arm to prop themselves up as they use the other to eat. And John is right next to Jesus and even leans into him. Asks who it is. And Jesus answers pretty clearly that he's going to dip a piece of bread and give it to this guy. So that would be probably oil that he's dipping it in. And he does it. He dips it and gives it to Judas. And yet the disciples don't know who did it. They still don't recognize. Most likely here, Jesus kept this hidden. Kind of like on the day of his resurrection as he appears to Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus, they cannot recognize him. Or when he goes to Mary Magdalene and she doesn't recognize him until he calls her by name. I would suggest that we consider Jesus somehow masks this moment. So even though he's spoken the truth, he prevents the disciples from being able to see. Now why? Well, I mean, Peter in the garden is going to lop off Malchus's ear. What do you think Peter's going to do to Judas right there in the dinner table if he learns that Judas has betrayed Jesus? Do you think the 11 other disciples are going to try to stop Judas from going out and doing it? So, Jesus knows it must be done. After receiving the morsel, Satan enters into Judas. Interesting language, because Judas has already made the agreement for 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus, but the betrayal has not yet happened. And this does read like demonic possession. This does read as though Satan entered Judas. And the way that we tend to talk about demonic possession today is that if you are of faith, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are filled with Christ and there is no room for a demon. We get this from Matthew 12, verses 44 and 45, when the demon says, I will return to the house from which I came. So it's been cast out, it's been exercised. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, the person empty, nothing there. 
is swept and put in order. It goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So we believe, essentially, that you can only be possessed either by God or by evil, not by both. If you are a Christian, a demon cannot possess you. They can torment you. They can cause great harm to you, but they cannot possess you. And so this is suggesting that in this moment, any faith Judas had is gone. Are there other possibilities? That's hard with the way it's phrased. Satan entered into him. Not Satan tempted him but entered. Jesus tells him to do it quickly. Don't prolong. Don't draw it out. Like ripping off the band-aid. Just do it. Make it quick. The disciples, the rest of them, don't understand. They think Judas is being given an instruction, a task from Jesus to do, not recognizing that it's about the betrayal. So go buy more food for the feast. Or give something to the poor because he's in charge of the money. He's been keeping the bag throughout their time traveling together. The feast. They're going to be feasting for the week ahead. At least they thought they were. The feast of unleavened bread is at hand. But Judas goes out. Immediately. That does make it sound. And there's debate about this. There's debate about whether or not Judas is at the meal when they celebrate the Lord's Supper for the first time, for Christ's institution of his body and blood in with and under the bread and wine for the forgiveness of sins, this makes it sound like he's not. But we don't get the words of institution from John, so there's that too. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Glorify is to be lifted up. To be lifted up that others may see. This is the hour for Jesus to be lifted up upon the cross. And that glorifies God the Father. So Jesus being lifted up on the cross brings glory to the Father because that forgiveness comes to us and we praise God for it. And so if God is glorified in Jesus, so for the one who praises God the Father because of the gift of his son dying on the cross, God will also glorify him, Jesus, in himself. So God then raises Jesus up from the dead and causes us to look upon him also. The Father and the Son are both glorified by Christ's sacrifice. Little children, speaking to the disciples, yet a little while I am with you. And here, truly, a little while, just a few more hours. You will seek me, but they won't be able to find him. 
where I'm going, you cannot come. He here is referring to his arrest, his trial, and his cross, that they will not be able to follow him the same day, because Thursday night and Friday morning, afternoon are all one 24-hour window. The way the Jews view today is it starts at sunset, so this is all together one day because it was night, verse 30. They won't be able to follow him. And they go out to the garden, they can't even stay awake. And then he's taken away from them. And they run. They flee. Verse 34, A new commandment I give to you. The Latin for new commandment is mandatum novum. It is what gives us our English word maundy, and thus the name for tomorrow. As Maundy Thursday is the day that this event took place in the scriptures, the new command is given. And the new command at first doesn't sound new, that you love one another. What's new about this new commandment is that you love one another just as I have loved you. So now they see the sacrificial love that God has for them. We see how he loves us, and we are called to do the same. To love our neighbor no matter the cost. To sacrifice of ourselves for one another. That's the new command. To see Christ's love and to live it. Live in it and live by it. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That does suggest, it seems to read, that this is within the church. So not loving the unbeliever, although we are called to do that too. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. But at this point, the way that the Christians treat one another, there's something holy set apart about that. That your neighbors, who aren't Christian, would see it. And we see this in Acts 2, that as they're living together day by day, uh, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, as they're going about generously in all that they do, that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The disciples, again, still don't quite understand. And Peter, as the chief of them, well, he challenges, he pushes back against Jesus a little bit right here, wanting to know why he cannot follow. And Jesus at first says, not now, right? Again, Peter will run away. Peter will deny him. But you will follow afterward. To death. To paradise. So the disciples will follow Jesus in the time ahead. Just not now. They cannot go with him this weekend. But they will go with him. Peter will be martyred by the Roman Emperor Nero in 68, crucified upside down on a cross. And he'll be with Jesus in paradise forever, just as will you and me. Jesus then, after Peter says he's willing to die for Jesus, Jesus predicts, foretells, that Peter will deny him three times yet that day. 
yet that night before the rooster crows, which roosters, to my knowledge, start to crow around four in the morning. They don't even wait for the sun to come up. Within just the next few hours, Peter. Peter would deny Jesus three times, and we know he did. Our second option for the Gospel reading for this Wednesday in Holy Week is the entirety of Luke chapter 22 and 23. So because of length, this will be more of an overview, maybe pointing out some things that are a little more specific to Luke's Gospel than the other Gospel accounts. This brings us to Wednesday of Holy Week. We've skipped over Sunday, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We've skipped over Monday and Tuesday, which are primarily days of teaching for Jesus in the temple, although the whole incident with the fig tree also happens on Monday. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Passover is the very first celebration in the Jewish calendar year. So they were told as they came out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, God gave them a brand new calendar. They were not to use the calendar of the world, but they were to have a calendar that focused them on God, that focused them, oriented their lives around the Lord, his promises, and his provision for them. There's a lot of strength in that for us today. We can do the same thing. We have our own calendar. We have a church here. It starts every year, either really late November or very beginning of December with the season of Advent. And then, so that focuses us on the promise that Jesus will come, both at the Incarnation, which we then celebrate with Christmas, but also that he will come again, the second coming. Advent focuses on that double theme of the coming of the Savior. Then Christmas celebrates that Christ came into this world to be our Savior. Epiphany celebrates that Jesus revealed his plan of salvation. He made it known to the world, including us. And then we move into Lent, a season of reflection of sorrow over our sins that put Christ on the cross. Then we have Holy Week, right, that leads to Easter. So Christ's death and then his resurrection. We focus so much on that, right? The Easter season then continues for several weeks before we come to Pentecost where Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit upon the church, flames of tongues over the disciples' head as they start preaching the gospel in the languages of all the people so that everyone can once again hear the good news that God has given to them. And then that season of Pentecost will continue and bring us full circle back up to the time of Advent. The entire year points us to Christ. It helps fix us on our Lord and on the mission that our Lord has given us to do. That is a unique calendar that is very much distinct from the calendar around us that the world uses, which is often tied up in, I mean, technically, I guess it's tied up in the, the movement of the sun and the stars and the moon and whatnot. But by and large, all practical purposes, it's tied up in finances, right? or even the academic year tied up in in school stuff, we have a distinct calendar that focuses us each day on Jesus. There's benefit to that. So this is their first major holy day, equivalent then for us Christmas, although we'd probably want to connect it more with Easter because it's more closely connected scripturally to Good Friday. Passover remembers what God did in delivering them from Egypt back in Exodus chapter 12, 13, 14, 
It is the fourteenth day of the first month that they are to kill the lamb at twilight. Then they're to have the Passover feast every year afterward as a remembrance of that salvation as God passed over the homes that had the blood of the lamb painted on their doorposts. The unleavened bread feast then stretches from the 15th day until the 21st day of the month. So just like we have a week-long thing here for Holy Week, they were also in the middle of a week-long celebration together. At this point, again, roughly Wednesday here in the text, the chief priests and the scribes want to put Jesus to death. They, they want him done. They want him gone. They don't want anything more to do with this man. But they're not willing to move against him in public because they fear it's going to cause a riot to break out. Common fear, right, for the Jewish people, for the Jewish leaders, with already so many people crowded into Jerusalem, if they get out of line, the Roman army will come in and squash them. And that would be really bad for everyone. So they don't want that. So they're not going after Jesus for that very reason. Which leads us to the next thing. Verses 3 through 6. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. The devil's temptations get the better of Judas. What it means that Satan entered into him, well, that certainly could mean, like we think of with demonic possession. That's a possibility. That would mean, however, that Judas didn't have faith to begin with for the devil to have entered him. The Holy Spirit would not have been in him. Um, difficult to say for certain, but Satan prompts Judas to do this thing, this evil against God. The devil is behind the scenes, fighting against God all the time. You may not have ever actually seen the devil, but it doesn't mean he's not there. It doesn't mean he's not working. It doesn't mean he's not even seeking to devour you. Judas' agreement here, because he knows Jesus, he knows his patterns, he knows where he goes and travels, he agrees to tell the scribes and the, the priests where they can find Jesus alone. No crowd. That's the key concept here. He, he knows where they'll go to the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where he's going to show them in this agreement. The next section, verses 7 through 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Jesus' ability to know all things, showing through a little bit here that they are going to go into a city, they're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. It's a bit of an oddity because that's normally a task that the wife, uh, right, the woman of the household would have taken up. So there aren't going to be a whole bunch of men gathering water, right? Uh, this one will stand out a little bit. Follow him. He will lead you to a place. The master of that house has a room prepared for the Passover. That's where we're going to celebrate it. 
that's the picture being given here. Now, maybe the interesting detail in this text that stands out doesn't stand out in English, but it stands out in Greek. You might remember the narrative of Jesus' birth, right? So commonly held among Christians today in the 21st century that there was no room for Jesus in the inn, and so he was born in a stable, um, no people around, just the animals. The Bible never says any of that. Um, the word that is used, that is translated in the normal English translations of our day as in, I-N-N, like a hotel, the word used in the early part of Luke is the same word used in this text here in verse 11 where he says, where is the guest room? The typical house in that region would have had only two rooms in it. You walk into the house on the, the lowest entry, the lowest door, and you're going to have really just a dirt floor, and you're going to bring your animals into your house overnight so that they can heat your home, right? You don't have a furnace. The animal body heat will help, and also so that there's less theft. You don't have to think about whether your animals will be stolen out of your yard over the night. So you might have a cow or a couple of donkeys. You might have some sheep, something like that. Um, just a small common person. So not your normal like shepherd in the field situation, but bring a few livestock into your home. You then have a raised platform. You go up a couple of steps to a secondary level of that same room, and that would be your living space. Your family would sleep together right there in that area. There's a few stairs to go up so that your animals aren't just going to you know, roll on top of you in the middle of the night and cause you injuries. At the edge of that platform, you would have carved out a couple of mangers, feeding troughs for your animals so that you could fill them before you went to bed so that if your cow or your sheep was hungry in the middle of the night, they weren't making a whole bunch of noise to wake you up. The other room in the house was called the Cataluma, the guest room. Every typical home, a region that is highly known for its hospitality, right? they had this extra room that if family needed a place to stay or if someone was traveling and needed a place to stay, if there was a sojourner among them, they had this space. The trouble is, Bethlehem is overcrowded because of this declaration, this decree of the Roman emperor to take a census of the land. So all the guest rooms in the city of Bethlehem are full. So what happens to Mary and Joseph? It would appear, then, knowing the archaeology of that place, that instead of going into some little cave off to the middle of nowhere, they were brought into the living room of one of Joseph's relatives where they could then have the child, and the child was placed into the feeding trough of one of the animals overnight. That's the sort of picture. That's why eventually the Magi, whenever, however long it takes them, they arrive, they see them in a house. Well, it was probably born in a house. But anyway, that's a bit of a distinction. I just bring that up because it's the only two places that Luke uses this word Cataluma. It's the same word that he uses here as he uses in the account of Jesus' birth. So, hey, Christmas and Easter, right? Anyway, our next section, the institution of the Lord's Supper, verses 14 through 23. When the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine 
until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. They recline at table. That's the position, the posture at which they would eat meals in the ancient Near Eastern culture. They didn't have tables like you and I have in our homes today with chairs and you'd sit in the chair. You would lie on your side, right, laying down on one of your sides. You would use one of your arms to prop up your head. And with the other hand, you would reach out into the center to grab food to put before you, maybe on your own plate or maybe just reach out of the common food pile and grab something and bring it to your mouth to eat. That was the common picture. Lots of pillows that they might make use of so that the ground wasn't so hard on your your hip and your joints and things. So they're taking this Passover meal together. And Jesus says, as he takes the cup, he's not going to drink the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. This was probably highly misunderstood by them, to be quite honest about it. I mean, the fruit of the vine wine was probably the more common drink. Yes, they had water and they could drink water, but water was also pretty dirty and you'd have to do probably heat it to clean it. They drink wine because it was cleaner. And so Jesus telling the disciples he's not going to drink wine again until the kingdom of God comes, probably taken to mean that he's about to attack Rome that their mindset of him overthrowing Rome's oppression, that somehow that's about to happen. Well, what was about to happen was Jesus was about to remove the full oppression of sin, death, and the devil, the greater oppression than Rome ever could be. And he did it for us. Take, eat, take, drink. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. As Christians, the Lutheran Church here agreeing, at least in part, right, with the Roman Catholic Church, that this is the true body and the true blood of Jesus Christ. We don't agree with them fully on how that happens, how it plays out. We leave it a mystery. Jesus simply said, this is my body, this is my blood. We don't understand the how. But we don't have to understand the how. We just have to trust his promise, right? He has said it, we take him at his word, and we celebrate, we rejoice, we partake of the feast that the Lord has given to us, his own feast in his own blood. Conversations around the meal sometimes will make you wonder if this is the third cup of wine or the fourth cup of wine because that's the, the pattern typical at a Passover celebration, four cups of wine throughout the course of the meal together. They obviously have some conversations before and after the meal, and we see some of those are recorded for us, and that includes the next one. But before we jump ahead, Jesus mentions at the end of what we just read that one of the disciples is going to betray him. And so they get into an argument, right? They start to dispute amongst themselves who it is that will betray Jesus. We often wonder if Judas was present at the Lord's Supper, 
Like he was there? Did he stay for it? Was he there for communion or not? If any of the gospel texts is going to make the argument in favor that he was there, it would be this one. This makes it sound like he was. But then they have another argument, verses 24 to 30. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, you can get a fuller account of this, even though it's not the same account. It's actually different. You can get a fuller picture of this in Mark chapter 10, as the disciples are still on the road to Jerusalem with Jesus. James and John make the request about sitting at Jesus' right and his left when he comes into his kingdom. In other words, when he establishes his earthly throne that they expect him to, they want the places of power right next to him. They want to be the most prominent people in his kingdom. Jesus gets into this conversation of who's the greatest with them. And obviously, they still have the argument again later on. We shouldn't think this is weird because how often do we do this? How often do we have the same arguments again and again, right? We do this too. So Mark 10 probably lays this out a lot more clearly than this one does. Uh, The idea that Jesus responds to their argument by saying that the the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. You know how earthly kings rule. You see it, right? Gentiles is a reference to the nations. Look around you. You know what they do. You know how Caesar acts. You know how your president acts, right? It shall not be so with you. And then we miss a comparative, right? The The English translation prefers the word greatest here and greater here because it connects to the argument that they're having, right? Which of them is the greatest? But when you use the word youngest in verse 26, you've got a comparative thing going on. So the greatest would really comparatively there be the oldest. So the oldest son is the one who gets to inherit dad's inheritance. The oldest son gets the family blessing, the birthright, those sorts of things. The younger brother serves. He's simply part of the family. He serves because he's part of the family. He does not have the promise of the things that his older brother does. Be not like the older brother who just thinks everything is his. You're the younger brother. Just serve in the house. right? Just serve in the family. Serve in the kingdom. This is what you were given to do. We see that with probably leader in serving a little bit better for us. We think of the boss employee relationship. We think of the teacher-student relationship. We think of those sorts of things because we see those more often today. Be as the one who serves. Jesus teaches that leadership, rulership, authority in this world is done by serving. And again, that comes across so crystal clear in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus calls them to do. He gives them the analogy, the picture, uh, the idea of when you're sitting at the table, right, and you've got a servant who's waiting on the master who reclines at the table, obviously it is the master who is the greater, and yet Jesus came to serve. Within the same context, Jesus will have washed their disciples' feet. That's not an account recorded here in Luke for us, but that is one of the events of the day. Jesus came to serve. And so we, instead of arguing about greatness, we serve one another. We serve our neighbor. We humble ourselves, as the Philippians 2 text talks about. We take after Christ. Then he goes on to say, a little ironically in verse 28, that they have stayed with him in his trials. They, they kind of have. They kind of haven't. They haven't seen his greatest trials yet. And when those come over the next 24 hours, they're going to disappear. But they've been with him as he's faced the persecution, the opposition of the Pharisees, the scribes, and the priests, and the elders of the people, and so forth. Now he's giving them a kingdom. Right? They're fighting over greatness. They want a kingdom. So now he's going to give them a kingdom. And what is this kingdom? They're going to sit at his table. Lord's Supper, right? You're welcomed to the Lord's table. That's the way I say it every time when we gather together in our our worship here at St. Matthew. Welcome to the Lord's table. There it is, right? You're going to be welcomed at the table. And you're going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This probably should not be read as a picture in paradise with the disciples showing up on 12 thrones to help with the day of judgment. If there is a layer like that for them, I suppose it could be. But better to take this here in this context as them being shepherds of the church. Again, leading by serving. That Peter is not going to be great because he's Peter. His greatness will be expressed in how he goes all the different people, and he shares Christ with them as a servant. So they are shepherds of the church. They lead the tribes of Israel. They lead the people of God. Jesus foretells Peter's denial, verses 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. In brief here, um, as we know a lot about Peter's denial, it's a common story. Notice Satan demanded to have you. We think of Job 1 and 2 where the devil makes accusations before God. The devil is limited by God. He cannot act unless God permits it. And so the devil wanted to have the disciples, the word you, Satan demanded to have you, the word you there is plural. He demanded to have the disciples, to sift them like wheat. Imagine like you've got a screen, a mesh screen, and you've got your, whether dirt or whatever it is on the screen, and you're shaking it around so that the little parts go through and the bigger clumps remain on top, right? We use a sifter in cooking. We use like the panning for gold kind of idea when we're looking at a little river or something. That's the picture here, that the devil wanted to do that with the disciples, to separate, to divide, to destroy some of them. Jesus specifically turns and says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, these yous are singular. 
He is focused on Peter because Peter is going to be the leader amongst the disciples. He already has been, right? He's been serving as that in the three years together with Jesus. He wants to pray specifically for Peter's faith to endure so that when the devil's temptations come and the time to come, Peter is able to build up his brothers. He is able to encourage and strengthen them as they continue to go about the work that Jesus has also given them to do. So Peter is going to deny him three times. And Jesus doesn't count this one, but he already does it right here, right? Jesus said, you're going to deny me. Peter said, no, I won't. That's a denial in and of itself. Verses 35 through 38, the scripture must be fulfilled in Jesus. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. In the past, in the sending out of the twelve, in the sending out of the seventy-two, Jesus sent them with nothing. They were to rely on the hospitality of those who received them. Now, it's different. Now, as Jesus is no longer the one presently with them to lead them and guide them in all things, Although he will still be with them, right? He's still present evermore, and the Spirit will be with them. But it's just a different, it's a different way of life that is coming. With Jesus there, physically in the flesh, present with them, there was a more openness to receive the Word of God. But now, talking about Jesus after his death, there's going to be much persecution, much hostility. They cannot rely on the hospitality of strangers any longer. They must now go prepared when they go for their journeys. Part of this is this idea of taking a sword. And so the disciples say, look, here are two swords. And Jesus says it is enough. A lot of people think this is Jesus telling them it's going to be okay to fight. It's going to be okay to kill and defend yourself. It's not what this is. Because if it was about fighting with the sword and using it even to defend yourselves, two would not be enough for 12 men. Right? Even In the moments that follow, that very night, they're going to go out into the garden. And when they have the opportunity to defend themselves and they speak up for themselves and say, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them strikes with the sword. Jesus yells at him, no more of this. And much more clearly in Matthew's gospel, we learn that Jesus would share with them that the one who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Jesus is not telling his disciples here to wield a sword as a weapon. Swords are still useful tools. They're useful for for construction purposes, for cutting various things. They're useful on a journey. As you travel, you might have to cut your way through various terrain. They are useful um, for cutting rope. They're useful for, you know, making clothing, cutting fabric. They have other purposes. This isn't just the sword in its sheath that's like several feet long that you go into battle with. This could even refer to a shorter sword as well. So, that's a picture to keep in mind. Jesus quotes from Isaiah 53:12. He was numbered with the transgressors. God's word about him must be fulfilled. One of the major Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah 52 and 53. It has its fulfillment. The time has come. Jesus has been considered a transgressor. He's been considered evil. He's going to be hung on a cross. 
They go out to the Mount of Olives, verse 39 to 46. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So again, Judas knew the custom of Jesus. He knew where to lead the priests and the the scribes, the temple guards, that they could find Jesus isolated and alone from the crowds. It's the Mount of Olives at night. Garden of Gethsemane, an oil press, not the season for harvest of olives, so they're not going to be busy in the press making oil. It's deserted, easy spot for the disciples to rest within a, a safe walking distance, an easy walking distance of Jerusalem to the east. So he teaches the disciples that they are to pray they may not enter into temptation. So pray, because Jesus knows the night is going to be difficult, that they're going to be tempted in many different ways. Pray against that. They fail. They fall asleep. They don't pray. And so when they wake up, they fall into temptation. They fight, right? They fight to defend themselves. They try to kill. And that's not the way Jesus is teaching his disciples to live. So he goes and prays. His prayer, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus isn't longing for the pain and the suffering of Good Friday. He is longing, he's desiring to save his people. And that's what we see here in the text. That's what Jesus is going for. The suffering comes, and he's not seeking to avoid it. He's going to endure it. The angel strengthens him. He sweats blood. Uh, I've heard it said that sweating blood is possible under the greatest moments of agony in this world. I've never seen it, but the position Jesus is in right before his suffering is, is great. He finds the disciples sleeping. Again, they could not pray that the Lord would deliver them from temptation, and so they fall into it in this next section, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now, one of the things that I have regularly written in my notes for today, what could Jesus do? Right? How could Jesus get out of this if he wanted to? And yet he came to save even them. The people who came to arrest him, he came to save even them. He died for the sins that they're committing here in this moment. So Judas, the kiss of greeting, we don't know exactly what that looked like, but many cultures have had such things. Uh, Judas kisses Jesus as the mark that he is the one that the men are supposed to arrest. 
The disciples question whether they should fight back, and one of them impatiently doesn't wait for an answer and just strikes. And cutting off the man's ear tells you where he was aiming, right? He's not aiming low. He's aiming high. He was aiming for the head. Um, and he doesn't quite get what he was targeting, but the Lord rebukes him, rebukes Peter, tells him to put the sword away, and instead heals that man. He heals the one who has come to arrest him. Imagine how Malchus responds to that. We know the names of these men from other gospel accounts. So, again, Jesus could have gotten out of this, but he questions them. He pushes back against them. Have you come out as against the robber? The particular Greek word there does have a violent connotation to it. This isn't just the petty thief. This is a thief who also has no care for the one he steals from and doesn't mind hurting them in the process. This is your hour of the power of darkness. It's a, it's a very dark day indeed. All right, I know we're running out of time, so we're going to have to pick up the pace. Peter denies Jesus. They seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. He went out and wept bitterly. Matthew 10, 32 and 33, the words of Jesus are important to consider here. The one who denies Jesus before men, Jesus will deny before the Father who is in heaven. Uh, this is a sin, one that we know Jesus will later specifically forgive Peter for as he commissions him to go back into his, his work and his kingdom. I think I'm going to, at this point, read the rest of the text for you. And then we'll take just a couple of minutes and summarize what's left. As we're approaching our one-hour mark already. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. 
When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man, as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together away with this man, and released to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent and demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land, until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we're at our show's time, so let me try to take a few minutes here and wrap this up. Again, I want to encourage you to consider throughout all of this, what could Jesus do? How could he have acted? He's God, right, in the flesh. How could he have acted before the scribes and the priests who accused him? How could he have acted before the council? How could he have acted with Pilate? How, what could he have done to King Herod? What could he have done in the garden to those men who came to arrest him? What could he have done on the cross to the soldiers who mocked him, to the rulers who mocked him? What could he have done to the criminal who mocked him? Could he have saved himself? Could he have redeemed himself, pulled himself down from that cross? Consider these things and know why he didn't. He did it even for them, even for all those people that I just mentioned who treated him so horribly in their sin. He died for them, just as he died for you, just as he died for me. So that's something to contemplate as you go through this text. Um, just a few details maybe that are worth speaking about. Herod is unique to Luke here. Um, the idea that Herod was in Jerusalem. Herod rules over the Galileans. Many of the Galileans are in Jerusalem at this time. Herod has longed to see Jesus. He wants to see the miracles he's hearing so much about, but Jesus refuses to perform miracles in King Herod's palace. And so Herod, upset, starts to mock him too and sends him away. It's intriguing, verse 12, that Herod and Pilate become friends this day. We don't know really what their enmity is over, nor do we, I don't think there's enough here that we know why they become friends, right? Um, they seem to have a bit of a different picture of Jesus from what we know in the details, but they are reconciled by Jesus. That's interesting to consider and ponder as well. So Pilate declares him innocent, wants to release him, after punishing him, that would seem to be to placate the crowd, right? To, to make their, their lust and their envy for his punishment, to at least give him some punishment, get them to set him free. They cry out instead for a murderer to be set free instead of Jesus. Skipping down to the crucifixion, they seized Simon of Cyrene. Point you to Matthew 5, verse 41, where Jesus said that if a soldier were to force you to go one mile, go with him too. So they've conscripted Simon for service. By the teaching of Jesus, do whatever they ask of you. Just do it and do so boldly. And so Simon fits into that here. This is not Simon Peter, Simon of Cyrene, who had been traveling. And then the, the women of Jerusalem are mourning. He tells them not to. What he's saying in verses 28 through 31 is about the sacking of Jerusalem, Rome's destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, that it's going to be so dark, so difficult, that it would be people would, would rather die than be a part of it, right? Better to die than to suffer prolongedly. So they wish the mountains would fall on them. Just have an, a rock avalanche cover me up. Let me be gone. If they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? That's a difficult phrase, so I want to hit that one. Essentially, if they do these things when the wood is green, so if Rome does this to an innocent man, 
so green wood, living wood, right? What will happen when it is dry? What will Rome do to the one who isn't innocent? What will they do to the one who is guilty? What will they do to the people of God in judgment? So what is coming? Jesus is warning them harshly about the destruction of Jerusalem that lies ahead. That they would cast lots to divide his garments and be seen in Psalm 22, verse 18. So a prophecy being fulfilled. The thief on the cross, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We even sing that in our liturgy here at St. Matthew during the season of Lent. Um, Famous response, today I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise, not heaven, paradise. It's the place that God has promised we will dwell with. And we don't know exactly what it looks like, but it consists of the new heaven and the new earth. And there's a new earth. Why is there a new earth if we're just living in heaven? Something to think about, right? All right, sixth hour is a reference to noon. The ninth hour, 3 p.m. During this three-hour window, darkness covers the land. The sun's light failed. Don't think of that as a dark, stormy, cloudy day. Think of it like the plague of darkness in the book of Exodus. The sun's light failed. God darkened the sun. Creation mourns as its creator is struck to death. All of creation groans. The temple curtain torn in two, top to bottom, is an important moment. The temple curtain separated God's presence, his throne in the midst of his people, from their sin. Right? They could not come into his presence and live. The temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. There is no separation from God's presence any longer because Christ on the cross, his death has forgiven the sins of all people everywhere in the world. They're forgiven in Christ. We can come before God and live. That's our picture here with that temple curtain. A very important, prominent moment. Luke likes to focus on the temple in his writings here. So Jesus dies. He breathes his last. He dies for you. He dies for me. He dies for the centurion. He dies for the soldier. He dies for the criminal. He dies for the scribe. He dies for the the chief priest. He dies for all of us. The centurion sees everything that takes place. And it causes him to praise God, not Caesar. He's a high-ranking Roman official. Praising God is trouble, but he does it anyway. Certainly this man was innocent. His witness to the things of Good Friday told him there was truth in Jesus. So the crowd goes away grieving. Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, who had not consented, so he was not in agreement. We don't have full agreement in those accusations against Jesus. How many others may have disagreed? The majority won out, whatever it may have been. He asked Pilate for the body to be taken down because it was the day of preparation for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. So here we are, late Friday afternoon. Jewish law does not permit the body to remain on the cross during the Sabbath. So it has to be taken down. Joseph sees to that. He puts the body in a tomb because there is not time for a proper burial. And so the ladies, the women who have come from Galilee, they see where the tomb is. They go and begin preparing to give Jesus a proper burial, but they are going to rest on the seventh day. They're going to rest on the Sabbath. So Saturday night into Sunday morning, Christ will rise from the dead and the women will not recognize it. Nobody will recognize it. They go to the tomb thinking that they're going to prepare him for burial. 
but they go to the tomb and they find a surprise. Glory to God in the highest. Amen. Amen.